Hello, thank you for joining us on another episode of Why Theory. On this episode, we will be uh, carrying on with our where to start, where not to start uh, theme that we introduced in the last episode. Todd, how are you? Hi, Ryan. Good. Excellent. So uh, today we're going to focus more uh, philosophy, I think, and less uh, psychoanalytic, which is not to say that psychoanalytic theory is not going to make an appearance on our list today. But who are we starting with? Or that it's not philosophical, right? Well, right, or that it's not, that's perfect. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So uh, where are we starting? I think let's start with Hegel. Awesome. Okay. So I think that part of what makes this uh, question so interesting is that... um, I guess seemingly against all odds, there is uh, such a renewed theoretical interest in Hegel, like over the last uh, 10 years, I want to say probably. You think 10 years? Probably, maybe more even. Maybe right? more. Like 15, yeah. But yeah. I think it's, isn't it almost all, it's, I mean, Slavoj is a big engine behind it. I don't know that he's the only thing. No, it's sort of like Catherine he's Malib- not the only Malibu, thing. like the Malibu, future of Hegel right. is, is like, that's such a great, I mean, isn't that, doesn't Derrida say that in the preface that he didn't think there was a future for Hegel? Until, yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, so we're in this impossible moment where Hegel is more relevant, perhaps, <laughs> than than uh, than ever for theory. So um, where should the uh, invested uh, or non-invested person start? Okay, so do you want to start? Because... I mean, I, do you have a do you have a do you have a d- yeah, off the track? I think no, you do. Right? I, I don't have an Maybe off. The do, t- you have a standard take. I think I have a standard take. Um, so. We're tr- I'm <clears throat> trying to resist the idea of like saying like you know one should read like an like a huge work. Uh, my my thing is I think the preface to Phenomenology of Spirit. I think that's where someone should start, and and because if you read the preface, there's um I mean I, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that there's like a great deal of like secondary writing just about the preface. So yeah, for y- sure. I mean, Derrida wrote the problem of the preface about the preface. Right, right, exactly, right. It. Because it's well, I mean, I mean, he's sort of. It's one of those points that where is like you know Derrida's totally right about it, but um, well, anyway, like you know the preface is after the whole thing, but then it comes before, right. and the writer's telling you what to do, you know. So it's like this. Well, yeah, go ahead. I think it's a good. I think that's a good answer because it kind of. I think you could say that it really. Uh, captures the whole of what Hegel's trying to do in the phenomenology. So I think, and and by extension, in his whole philosophical project. So I think that's a really, it's a, it's a, it's like in the safe zone, and it's and it's a good one. I think. Yeah. It's well, a, I think know, that yeah. it introduces, and it's short. Right. It, it it's is like, it's like what thirty five. Like four, forty. I think. Or I think I've got like I think I've like written down like forty five pages. So it's not. Yeah. It's not the longest amount, and you do get. I mean, he introduces you to the whole project, but I think the biggest idea for Hegel that I think one could come away with, and this is why I think it serves as like um, a skeleton key to what he is on about, is uh, mediation, and you understand right. that you right. cannot have. Uh, you cannot have truth. You cannot have uh, well absolute knowledge. You cannot ha- you know have any sort of um, uh, philosophical investigation without some strong idea of mediation. And I think that there is quite a lot of theory today, like object oriented ontology um, is one. And I think um, this is just something I was reading for my dissertation. Like I mean, like even like post humanism or things like this, where like what people are trying to do is they're trying to. Um, get escape out mediation exactly they're trying yeah. to escape mediation and they're even trying to escape theory they're trying to escape philosophy or like the, a whole history of thought so you can get outside of it and make some kind of claims i mean like that's like i don't know i think la ruelle is like that kind of person like to a t 
uh, you know, uh, who what Derrida called him a terrorist to philosophy. I think. Yeah, that was a that was kind. I mean, <laughs> God, he he should be like. I just think you know, for he for me, he's an argument for why Goebbels was right to burn books. He just <laughs> you know, you know, God. I mean, he bur- of course he burned the Freud and Marx. Those wait, are the wait, wrong ones. Those are the wrong books. books. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I we did La Ruelle in some group I was part of, and and we basically talked about his book for like three minutes, and then just talked about other things. Yeah, there was just yeah, you know, there's just nothing to talk about. It was just yeah, it was just nonsense. So so yeah, so I I feel like that 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 and and that that notion of the necessity of of the mediating move mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. really manifested in the preface and also the, the corresponding critique of immediacy. Yeah. Right. And that's, right. I think that's what kind of got him in trouble with Schelling, that Schelling read the preface. Although this is a little debated because they actually, it, a lot of people think the preface was the, 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 the sort of thing that split Hegel and Schelling. Mm. But interestingly, I think there's, I know there, there's correspondence after that that's sort of kind. It's not, okay. it's not terrible. So, <laughs> but it does it does seem that and Hegel was like, I'm attacking Schelling's, you know, uh, followers, not Schelling himself. And but you know that but there is still this idea in Schelling of some kind of non-mediated um, intellectual intuition, and I think that's the thing that. Hegel. I mean, he's pretty. He's critical of that throughout. So yeah, um, and it's pretty. I I think a lot of the other thing about the preface is why it's a good choice is that there are a lot of great formulations that he has. You know, like not just as substance, but also like substance as subject. Subject is great, which I think is for Slavoj the. It's the. It's sort of the sentence that maybe encapsulates everything about Hegel for him. Mm. I, I had this idea that me, that each Hegelian thinker has one part of Hegel that is, is, is sort of stands in for the all. And, oh, that's you know, so Kojev, funny. Yeah, with yeah. Kojev, it's very easy. It's the master-slave dialectic. Right, thing. right. I think with Slavoj, it's that... I once said this to him, and he said, you're totally wrong. So, <laughs> you know, so I'm probably wrong, but I thought it was this substance, this subject. Or you said but something this, so right that he had to reject it. So we can... We that's can, very we, kind <laughs> of you, but I, I think it was probably just wrong. Uh, and then also this Dasganza, das, das, das das the, the, the truth is the whole, mm. that, which is also, you know, open to incredible misinterpretations, mm-hmm. but... Is is like a very famous Hegelian line. So I think a lot of his best lines, you know, the night in which all cows are black, mm. that comes from the preface. So a lot of these great Hegelian truth is not like a minted coin that's printed all at once. You know, yeah, all these yeah. you know nice little things are are. And in fact, I think all of them have to do with the the thing that you mentioned is mediation. So. Is is there is it elsewhere in phenomenology where he says that um that a uh, like what does he say? The spirit arises not like dross through from pure, or it doesn't uh, drip away like dross from pure metal. Like what is it like? Or he's talking. This is when he's talking about fiction, like the necessity of. Yeah, of, of, yeah. Of, I don't know. I don't know. You'll you probably know better than me where that is. That I can't. I can't locate. I'm not sure if that's in the if that's in the um, the preface or not. But it's such right. a great yeah. idea from um, yeah. from phenomenology that like you know you don't. Uh, this I think actually goes back to, um, something we said in the, in the fake news episode about how you, um, 
that truth or, or is not this like uh, objective thing that you need to get outside of uh, fiction or or or, or yeah, whatever. that's in the that is definitely in the in the preface. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. that so, notion of truth as like first you have to have the fiction and then the truth comes out of that. Like yeah. you don't get truth doesn't come all at once. I think that's and then the so truth doesn't this, lose the fiction. Like you still need right. It, it never escapes it fully. Right. I think that's right. Yeah. And I, I think that it's. I think that's. What's nice is about the preface as a starting point is that that's all totally, it's all totally there, and and I, I think you I think you could easily make the argument that you don't really uh, <laughs> need to read. The no, rest I'm of not going to say. You're it. not going to yeah, say. I, it. Know, you, I think gonna... you need to read the rest of the book, but I do think that you kind of have the idea, and mm-hmm. then you just you know the rest is kind of the method of seeing how it works itself out. Well, so, I think that I think the, the argument, but I, I think the whole yeah. book isn't a bad starting point either. Yeah. You know, like it's a I think it's hard, mm-hmm. but. Um, and I don't know if you can, I read it on my own first and Mm -hmm. I had a lot of trouble. Yeah. I basically, I once said to someone, you have to read the phenomenology once just so you can reread it. Yeah. Yeah. And then you kind of get what's going on. So I think it's, but I don't, I don't think that's true of the preface. Like I think the preface is Mm. pretty readable and I think there are sections that are readable and can, and you can get through on your own. But also there are a lot of good secondary materials now. It's not like when I was a kid and yeah, you, know, you rec- trying to read the phenomenology when I was eight. And I just get any. <laughs> right, that's when you, know, you had it next to the Winnie the yeah. Pooh, and you were like, "This is why yeah." Is this no, so I was harder? in grad school, even, and I, <laughs> that's how dumb I was. Yeah. Uh, well, you recommended to me just to put that out there, the um, Robert Stern's book, the the Routledge. Yeah, I think it's yeah. good. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think there's a lot of good commentaries. I mean, I've read um, the Frederick Beiser Hegel book is good. I mean, there's a lot of good. There's a lot of really good. I mean the. The this would be where not to sort, but the, the <laughs> one the one commentary that's a disaster is Peter Singer because it's okay. like a you know like he's he's a utilitarian so he's like an enemy territory trying to do what he can to sabotage people's <laughs> understanding of Hegel. But <laughs> that's not really a, yeah. that's not a commentary in phenomenology anyway. Gotcha. So that's just an introduction to Hegel's mm. Isn't um, the isn't the argument for uh, struggling to read phenomenology that that is exactly the point that he's making about absolute knowledge? Like, yeah, like yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So then, so in that sense, is your point that uh, using a commentary is cheating, and you're not really getting there? Um, I, I suppose I would never. Yeah, I don't think I would want to say that because I, I certainly haven't read that book without commentary. But I think that it's the. Well, I, I was just just going back to the idea that like you only need to read the preface. The argument for struggling through the rest of it, the parts that are hard, whatever, is that, is that that's where the real philosophy is. Well, yeah, and it, and it's sort of like almost performative of his point. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's true. Yeah, yeah, I think it's true. I mean, I think it is true that he's the one. I mean. I think it's. I think this is why maybe he's having this renaissance today is because he's the philosopher of form, mm. even more than Kant. It's funny because Kant, you know, like he famously develops a formalist ethic. He creates right. a form through which we have the conditions of possibility for experience of the world. Mm. But mm. I think Hegel, even more than Kant, takes form seriously. You yeah. know, he 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 gets at. The way, and that's why I think the form of phenomena, and, and I think he understands that in terms of his own work as well, even though he's, people think he's a notoriously bad writer. So how can a, someone be a bad writer and then be so concerned with form? But I think he really, I think it's fair to say that he is and that, that, and that you're right. Just the way you describe it is perfect, that, that the struggle to read phenomenology is part of the phenomenon. That's what the phenomenology mm-hmm. of spirit is. It's not separable from that. Mm. You know, Lacan says that about Aristotle, I think, in Seminar 7, that, it, like, he has this great line 
about how one one must read all of Aristotle like all the way through like and and it, it's it's hard but you you grab on with what to what you can and to get to the end and then you can read it again and it's so funny that he says that because that's exactly how you're supposed to read Lacan I think yeah that's true yeah. I mean I'm sure he thought of that as a kind of like what I'm really talking as about a meta comment yeah. yeah yeah all right so where should we start uh, with Hegel. <laughs> Uh, okay. Yeah. I'm going to go off. I, I don't, I like your suggestion, sure. but here I'm going to, I have a couple. Okay, so cool. My short one would be the introduction to the history of philosophy, which okay. is not, it's, it's a little longer. It's maybe 75 pages, but I think it gives the best. And I, what I like about it is it gives a nice account of dialectic. Like it, it mm. really, I think it's Hegel's most concise and, and clear, description of what he means by a dialectic. So that would be my first thing, and that's relatively short. But if you want to read just one book, I don't know if I ever said this to you, but yeah. my my choice would be encyclopedic logic from the encyclopedia, obviously, from the encyclopedia. So there are two logics. So there's the greater logic, which is 800 pages, <laughs> and and, you know, weight, not just weighty in that sense, it's pretty hard to get through. But the lesser logic is, so it was part of this encyclopedia that he wrote for students, mm-hmm. So it's, you know, <laughs> I mean, he had a lot of demands on his students, but <laughs> it's, 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 it's accessible and it's, and it's, and it's does a nice job of, again, like sort of laying out what's at stake, but also doing this kind of thing that you like about the preface is mm. that it's kind of critiquing this attempt to get at immediate forms of knowledge or, you know, other kinds of, he, so he's very critical of other kind like empiricism mm rationalism, other kinds of philosophies. So it's, it's kind of nice to see how he's sort of positioning himself as a thinker at the same time as he's developing his own thought. So, so that's why I like that. So the, the lesser logic is your is your Lesser pick? logic who, or encyclopedic who has the, logic. Who has the translation of that? Like the Okay, con- so that's yeah. another, that's a question. So yeah. the, the one that I first read is the William Wallace translation, not the Scottish <laughs> independence fighter, but... Uh, I don't think he's, he's British, but he's not, he's not, of course, William Wallace uh, died before Hegel wrote. So, um, isn't that who Mel Gibson is? That is who he is. Yeah. That that's terrible. He, he yeah, shouts yeah, for freedom. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, uh, so that's what I read first and it's, it's nice. It's, it's incredibly poetic and it's beautiful and I, it, it's tempting to even recommend it, but it's just really not true to the text so <laughs> so that's that's a problematic interesting so i think that there's a new and then oxford did another one and then I, but there's a new one out in this you know cambridge is sort of systematically going through so cambridge has a really good greater logic and now i forget the name of the translator but they have a new encyclopedic logic the problem is those are pretty expensive but yeah, um yeah is that the so is this the one i'm I, that i'm looking at on my shelf right now that you actually you may have told me to purchase that i will admit on recording i haven't read yet the okay that's shameful it but is I'm shameful just, yeah no, so I'm no the, the they um so the encyclopedia the encyclopedia of the philosophical sciences and basic outline part one that's science it. that's yeah. that's yeah. it that's it that's it i so have a translator so that's funny i have that right oh who's the translator sorry that's right that's yeah. the the answer that we're looking for well the funny thing is i have that right next to my william wallace uh copy of the lesser logic oh well that's good i mean they belong together but i i i I have to say I loved reading the Wallace, and yeah. that, that was one of the books that seduced me to Hegel. So we're looking at I'm like, yeah, Klaus Brinkman and Daniel Dahlstrom. Okay, yeah, 
That's what we're looking okay. at for here. So it's the Cambridge okay. one. Yeah, it's the Cambridge. So they I mean, they have a series of books, uh, translations that they're coming out with. Although it's interesting because there's a kind of competing thing. So Hegel's lectures are being re-edited in German mm-hmm. right now, and Oxford is putting those out and in in, a, in fairly nice volumes. And so there's this kind of competing thing. So the written works are basically being published by Cambridge, and the and the Lectures are being published by Oxford. Gotcha. So Hegel basically wrote in his life four books. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not true. He wrote other little <laughs> smaller ones. Yeah. But in his maturity, he wrote basically four books. So first, Phenomenology of Spirit, then the Science of Logic, then the Encyclopedia, and then the Philosophy of Right. So then, mm-hmm. then that's published 1821. And then sort of the last 10 years of his life, he just basically is lecturing, and students are taking... Lecture. So when I, the one I mentioned as a as a good starting point, the history of philosophy, the beginning, it's just he never really wrote it. So it's just lecture notes, his own oh, lecture interesting. notes in some well, cases, and lecture notes from the students in other cases. So it's like Shakespeare, actually. That's like the, the folio, right, that we it's have. It's like the folio yeah. versus the core. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, except it's much less certain <laughs> the nature of the text, right? Like, in fact, um, the editor of his, of the, lectures on, that he gave on aesthetics mm-hmm. refuses she's so a lot of people make a lot of hegel's aesthetics right right yeah mm-hmm. her her claim is look there's not even we should never talk about hegel's aesthetics because he never published in aesthetics mm-hmm. and he never even called he called them the lectures on fine art you know and so mm-hmm. th- this guy heinrich hotho after hegel died published this book you know hegel's aesthetics and and from his own like like he took lecture notes and he had other people he consulted a lot, but you know he still he still also like made it into what he what he what he wanted him to say Hegel was going yeah, to for yeah. right so that's you know that's a little misleading so mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting because I think a lot of people would say start with the aesthetics I mean I've taught three classes on Hegel twice phenomenology once. The aesthetics, and by far, students had the easier time with aesthetics. Hmm. It was just much easier, you know. Like he goes through like two. He sort of takes two uh, histories of the of of aesthetics or of art, and 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 goes through in different ways mm-hmm. this history, and and it's pretty accessible, you know. So, and I think it does a pretty good job of capturing his thought. I don't think it's too sort of bastardized, but it's not. I think it's fair to say it's not really a Hegel book. Hmm, that's interesting. So, it's yeah, also it's kind of interesting. It's the, I mean, it's the most accessible. You know, it's kind of funny. Like I'm looking at my shelf. I have. I realize now I have three copies of the Lesser Logic. I've read the William Wallace, but I have the Hackett translated one too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I also have the uh, the Cambridge one. Yeah, uh, that's right. I was wrong. So I thought that Oxford did another edition, but it's you're right. It's it, Hackett that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so that's it. so that's I have three of that, and these all look like academic books. And then introduction to the um, lectures on on aesthetic. That's a Penguin published one. So not only is it like is that a more accessible text uh, to read? It's also like I mean you can get that for like thirteen bucks. These other ones, right? Like, except that's not the full lecture, right? Exactly. It's but, just but the your introduction. point is right. Yeah, that, it, that it, they nonetheless like they would never think of making a Penguin of. Phenomenology, of the lesser logic or the phenomenology. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. Right. So that's interesting. Right. So it like yeah. it, it's both. It both serves as a good introduction, but it may not even be a Hegel. This is what. What is this? This is like the the set that doesn't include itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, I don't. I mean, I think it's. <laughs> I think it's actually a pretty good introduction. Although, um, 
again, like I'm wary of these texts that require a lot of gloss. Like mm. I think that one requires a lot. Of, like you kind of, in order to know what he's doing, you have to know what he's doing. Mm. So you exactly. have to already kind of, you have, in order to know what he's saying about art and understand it properly. Like when he says for us, uh, art no longer, no lo- you know, I, what does he say? Like art no longer has something to say or something, mm. you know, like... Mm. Or, but his point is not like there's no more art. So this whole theory of the end of art is like, that seems like a, and I think that gets often attributed to Hegel, the death mm-hmm. of art or something. It well, seems like isn't that's that, not what he's isn't that saying a, at all. Isn't yeah. that a way of reading Hegel? Like the end of history also, right? Is like the, the yeah. you know, like, I, I, I mean, not, the, and I'm trying to defend it. It's like, it's almost like symptomatic of, of reading Hegel is that like what he was interested in is like the end of things, which is not even close do you I, think I that's know. not even close? Well, I don't like. I mean, because don't you then? If I mean, if something's over, then when's the? Where's the contradiction? Where's yeah, okay, antagonism? So, that, that's I guess that's right, my point. Right, right. No, I, I got you. So uh, we're gonna do the whole episode, <laughs> <laughs> which would be fine with me. But uh, uh, okay, I think there's two ways to think about this. Sure. One is his point would be, and I used to think this totally mm-hmm. that we're always. Like it, it's not that he's teleological; it's that it's we're always looking at things from the end, right? right. So it's a kind of like pre-Freudian theory of nocturnalkite or oh, of retroactivity. Uh, retroactivity, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's why you always are at the end of history. Mm-hmm. That I used to think that. Okay. Um, now I'm not so sure. Now I think like I think his point was like once I came along and recognized that contradiction was absolute yeah and that thus we're free because and i think this is his great insight is that the other this what we anything we think is substantial that is is independent and and exists on its own right without any otherness Mm -hmm. is always infected by some kind of otherness and once we once we understand that then there is a sense in which history is in some sense is over. Like there's no more great discovery to make. Like I see no one ever is going to make like whatever scientific discovery we make, we're never going to get beyond this this ontological contradiction. Hmm. We will never get beyond that. And thus we will never get beyond the fact of freedom because if the other is not substantial, Mm -hmm. then you are free. Hmm. Right. And so I think, that's really I don't nice. Know. To me, there's mm-hmm. a real argument to be made that that is the, in some sense, that's the end of any kind of history that has the ability to, to discover something f- that would shake that insight. Like mm-hmm. I think he thinks that insight will never be shook, shooken, shook, shook. Sh- yeah, that's shook. That's yes. a very that's a very Lacanian like insight. Is is it not? Like I mean, like that's, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, it's kind of like the big other doesn't does, exist. Does not right? exist. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's yeah, what I. That's yeah, what I was thinking. Yeah. Or like or, that's. Or you, I mean, but of course you have to say it the other way around. That right. Lacan comes to a Hegelian insight. Right. 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 Lacan comes. To, yeah. Of yeah. course. Yeah. Like well, that, I mean, that's like um. Well, it's almost. I mean, that's interesting to to think about like Lacan, like to think about transference in Lacan as Absolutely. Go, moving through that Hegelian insight. Oh. Yeah, it's a it's incredible, right? Mm-hmm. Like that. That's a great point. That's exactly how you have to think about transference, and also it's like the it's why Hegel's such a so committed to love, right? Mm-hmm. Like love is precisely this understanding that the other is divided. Yeah, right. Like that, and and it's the difference between love and and 
you know, like the the fantasy of the other. That the I fantasize that the other is this it has access to this is this being of wholeness mm. that I and I want to I want to get at that and I want to touch that hmm. and then and then love is when you recognize no the other it's the divide in the other right. that is actually what draws me mm. you know? mm-hmm. right so what is it I feel like yeah, yeah I think you're right to say that's a great I mean it's a great mm. connection between psychoanalysis and philosophy, which you were right to say we were probably going to talk about <laughs> psychoanalysis. <That's laughs> right. I was right to, to lead it. We just it. can't help it. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. funny. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I guess we shouldn't do a where not to start <laughs> with Hegel. No, let's do a where not to start. A where not to start. I, so I, I have to say, I don't know that I've even read enough to say like not to start at a certain place um, because I'm, I've read the Wallace uh, lesser logic and phenomenology and I maybe started introductory lectures on aesthetics. So your answer to this question would be more valuable than mine. Okay. So here's mine. I think, and I'm surprised you haven't read this. So my, my answer is philosophy of history or that little collection. This, I mean, I'd also be a penguin and I don't think it is, but it's, Mm. it's it's widely accessible called reason in history. Oh, okay. Which is basically the, not basically, it is the introduction to the philosophy of history. Okay. So that is peddled (laughs) by a lot of people as Hegel's like the key to Hegel's philosophy, I the see. accessible, and and it's not surprising that that also has all the more egregious statements on Africa and race. And, yeah, okay. You know, so it's so which I we're going to do a that, podcast about separately. By the way, we will in. do a separate yeah. podcast about that. But yeah. th- that seems to me to be a way to really get people turned off of yeah. Hegel because he seems like this totalizing figure who's dismissive of. Asia, Africa, uh, you know, China, mm-hmm. India, all of Asia, Africa, everything like that doesn't really have anything to do with world history. And mm-hmm. then the, that that in some way Prussian or, or German society and uh, of his time is the is the height is the end point of history, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's how that usually gets taught, and that I say, that seems to me totally disastrous. And and so I think it's a, that. To me, this question's pretty easy. Like, you give someone philosophy of history, you're going to guarantee they'll hate Hegel. Hmm. Like, I almost think, I think there's some value in that book, but I think there is only, and again, this is lecture notes taken by his students, Mm -hmm. compiled after he was dead. Mm -hmm. So there's no such book, philosophy of history, that Hegel wrote. Okay, that's the first important thing. Mm -hmm. But secondly, I feel like there's some value in that book, but my claim would be it's only after reading the greater logic, the science of logic, gotcha. that you can even make sense of it. And mm-hmm. he was giving the lectures to, to students who had, had he had taught in logic. So I feel like there's absolutely no... I almost think that should be another burned book, <laughs> even though it's a Hegel book. That's, like, I really... I'm close to thinking that. That's pretty funny. Like, I, I think it's... I think it's so dangerous. I mean, <laughs> I just think it's a dangerous book because I think it leads to certain, I think it almost guarantees, or it should be one of these, like, you know how in uh, Da Vinci Code they have down in the in the papal basement of the library, they have this thing, it's a, a hermetically sealed oh, yeah. vault that you can only mm-hmm. go to if you're you get a special pass from the Pope. Like, <laughs> that would be... I, that would be for me philosophy of history. So you have to pass all these tests <laughs> to be able, and to, then you're allowed to go down in there and read the actual. So, 
so actual text. Let, let's con- let's keep a running not burn book list but a vaulted book list like that okay. we should we right. should do that All so right. uh okay. f- okay. uh philosophy of history is is on the in the vaulted okay. book list yeah right. that's good all right. all right so let's move on to marx which yes. is maybe will be less controversial perhaps because, yeah i don't know cuz you have a good i think i like yours on this yeah no so um i I think it's well. Wait, wait a minute. I, I hope that I'm I'm going to say what I uh, said because this was a couple weeks ago that we prepared. Um, I think that it has to be, uh, it has to be the the beginning of of capital. Like I I, okay. I can't capital is too much to, for me to say. You should start with capital. Yeah. But I think yeah. that it has to be the um, so chapter one. Of chapter capital. one. It's it's got to be um, on the commodity. On the commodity. It, and the reason why I say this is so this this answer I'm gonna tie in with my where not to start. Like this is part of my okay. my my reason my reasoning here is that um, where not to start with Marx is the communist man. I really by the way. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I just talked over you, but no. I really like your answer on this. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Communist manifesto. Um, in. This I am. Uh, I'm coming at this as like of all the people that we're uh, going to talk about. I mean, like certainly Freud. I think is taught not a, not texts uh, in like high schools across America, but he's taught as a figure. So, um, and it's possible that he and Marx might be the only uh, thinkers that we're going to talk about in these podcasts that like everybody in America has some sort of idea about, uh, because of like primary education. And I was teaching a writing class at UVM. You think primary education, not secondary? No, secondary. Sorry. I'm, I meant, I just, (laughs) you went to a good school. No, I didn't. I went, I've been publicly educated my whole life. I meant, I just, I just meant that whole, (laughs) I know what you meant. Yeah. You know what I meant? Just like, just, yeah, not going to college. So I, but yeah, I was in a, I was teaching a writing class and I asked my, um, I don't know what point I was trying to make, but I was, I was trying to make like a, like a Marxist point about writing. And I just turned to the class and I was like, what can anyone tell me about, about Marx? And some kid really confidently raised his hand and said like, yeah, didn't he like kill like a lot of people? And I was like, no, (laughs) absolutely not. He was like, but didn't like communism. I was like, I, well, like fascism did. I was like, but uh, Marx, there's like, you could read all Marx front to back. He doesn't say like, once you have seized, uh, once you've given the people, the means of production, just like kill everybody. Like that's not in, that's not in anywhere. But so this is, but the, the, the tremendous amount of, uh, misunderstanding I think about, um, about Marx is like part of my, my, uh, my answer here. So that's obviously an extreme misunderstanding, but I think, um, a misunderstanding that occurred in Marx's own uh, lifetime occurred from the Communist Manifesto, which is very, which is a early, early Marx or earlyish, and it um, can be read as utopian nonsense, and was even read that way by people while he was alive. And it is, was this utopian reading of the Manifesto that caused him to say that he was not a Marxist. Yeah. And yeah, that's good. It's and and it's and it's so you, you know, I think I mean, I just remember this from from middle school and high school that we read either excerpts or the whole thing with the Communist Manifesto as just like this like this thing. And and I think if you think that this is what Marx is and he's just proposing again, like a utopian society, he's proposing a society that is like John Lennon's Imagine. If that's what you think (laughs) Marx is, then you you're greatly mistaken. And all that you need, I think, to be dispelled of that notion is to read the, uh, the chapter on the commodity of capital. And you realize that 
not only does he understand capital better than you, but he understood it without like 150 years of development of capital. Yeah, and, that's and, pretty. It's yeah, yeah. No, it's pretty amazing. That's that's a good riff that you just went on. Thank you. Uh, yes. <laughs> I I like. Uh, by the way, I like the song Imagine. I, I do too. Words. So yeah. I, when I find myself singing the words, I'm like, I wish that, that I could just change all the words because I think the song is kind of it's a nice little tune. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think you're right about that. Um, I do think though that the great insight of of manifesto is the history of all either two existing societies, history of class struggle. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that. That notion of class struggle, does, I mean, it's not articulated in the in the commodity chapter of capital. So I figure, mm-hmm. I do think that that's something that you would just have to you'd have to you know have to have to introduce as well. But mm-hmm. I, I, I take your point in general. I also think though that which you didn't mention, I think it's implicit in what you said though, mm-hmm. is that the that that the manifesto makes Marx into much more a political thinker than an economic thinker. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we see in, in the in the first chapter of Capital, those two things more come. I mean, it's much more economic, but even the political is tinged mm. when it appears with the economic. And I also think that the first chapter of Capital is much more influential, finally, on subsequent theorists. Yes, I think right? that is like, totally like, true. Like yeah. Lukács, mm. Adorno, like these great figures of 20th century thought. I think it's really... It's really the it's really the beginning. I mean, all of capital, but the beginning of capital that does that. So I like mm-hmm. your I like both of your your answers quite a bit. I almost would say that. I mean, the 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 so the so for Hegel, the doxa would be philosophy of history, the mm-hmm. starting point. Yeah. For Marx, I think it would either be Communist Manifesto or it would be the little uh, preface to the contribution to the critique of political economy. You know that little three page, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which has the like, it's not life that creates conscious or it's not conscious that, that creates life, life but life that creates consciousness. consciousness yeah. So all this kind of like materialist. And so that, I think the danger of that work is that it makes Marx into this reductive materialist. Mm-hmm. And that is obviated, I think by the commodity fetishism chapter, yeah. just by, just by the very nature of the fact that it's talking about the way that the commodity affects the psyche. Yeah. Right. Yeah, like really it's nice. just not this reductive materialist thing. Like it's really about the way the psyche inner that kind of dialectical relation between material causes and the psychic response to them. So mm-hmm. I feel like that's, it's great. So I, I, I'm tempted to just second your choice. I guess <laughs> the only, I, I, I often teach um, the economic and philosophic manuscripts, but again, that has the same as an introductory text. Mm. That has the same kind of problem that you identify with the manifesto. I think that it's well, I, it, yeah. I, yeah. I, I was just going to say, like, I I, um, I had the the text. One of the other texts I was considering as where to start is the 18th Premier of Louis Napoleon. Um, yeah, you like that. I I, know. I, I do I like know. that a lot because that was my. Um, so I, the the class that I had with you, um, that was we, I taught that. Really. Yeah, you taught that, and that was for for me. It was quite profound in that it shook shook me from the person who thought that like it was uh, Marx is the Marx of Communist Manifesto, and that was like all that he did to this guy who is um, thinking in a in a in a in a very different way in a more um, I, I don't know. There's something that that. Um, in my memory, maybe I'm wrong. I haven't read the Communist Manifesto in a while, but there's something about that text that seems not concrete 
And it seems that right. like the right. 18th premiere right. of Louis Napoleon and especially Capital is you're you're looking at at Marx, who is like showing you very concrete re- relations of how the you know, of how the world works. And like like he's just pulling us all the way back to like first principles that we've you know disavowed. Uh, yeah. basically. And I mean, this is why the study of videology, right? Like you, you can, right. Absolutely. You, yeah. You can, right. you can Absolutely. start here. Yeah. So that, that's, um, yeah. that's why I think that text is yeah. valuable. I like that. My, my, I guess if my, I want a, a colleague, um, I'll just mention him cause it's not a bad thing that he did. Huck <laughs> Gutman yeah. asked me in the hall. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, I have a student who wants to know where to begin with Marx. What would you say? And I said, well, I, I would say the Grandrissa. Mm-hmm. I think that's, and mm-hmm. then he's like, come on. It's like 900 pages. Give me a break. <laughs> and then I said the first chapter of Capital. And he said, okay, that's more reasonable. But I do think, like, I think the Grundrisse is the greatest hit. And mm. so I think that if we we're going to go to this thing, like like we talked about with Slavoj, like less than nothing is the one that you would be the great one. Yeah, yeah. That you, you should really, if you could start with and you were able to, that would be the one. And I think that's true of Marx. Like, I think Grundrisse is pretty great. And it has... Mm. So much stuff, like, I mean, so many, he has so many great, I just, this is, I'm just going to pick one. Mm-hmm. So one of the common, uh, like, Paul Ryan and Rand critiques of of Marx's critique of capital is, well, why the workers can just save up and, right. you know, become capitalists themselves. And he has this great critique of how if they save, actually what they're doing is devaluing their labor. Yes. And so the capitalist is going to end up paying them less. Yep. And so it's like a, if they do it all mass, it's a self, totally self-defeating process. Yeah. And the one laborer <laughs> can save and be more industrious only if the other ones Didn't don't. Do not. Yes. Right. Yeah. That's the so only... That's, it's, so it's so great. It's like a total, it's like a total explanation for why capital needs all these lazy workers to have a few workers that are industrious. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's so great. Well, I, I mean, mean, doesn't that that logic? I mean, I think that that logic is so great because it utterly defeats that bootstrapism of you know right, Paul Ryan right. and and, yeah, and, and course, Rand. Is that it depends you you can like sure like let's even accept that you can bootstrap, but you can only do so like in if no one else can right, right like right. It, when, with right. other people are not able to right. and no, no one else it is does. possible to do it just as long as no one else just as long as no or one not else, enough right. other people do yeah right. yeah right. yeah it's certainly possible to do it mm-hmm. yeah i mean marx is very clear about this so anyway that's one of the little great hits from grandersa but there's a lot i mean the problem is that i don't know why i really am confused so it's written like uh i think he stopped writing in like 57 58 mm-hmm. And then Capital 67. So it's weird to me that he didn't just publish it. Because, hmm. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's just, like, copied out of... There's ton like, page and pages of quotes from certain capitalists. So we don't have to cut that. Hmm. But basically, it's pretty great. And and I guess it's missing some of the flares of Capital, like the first chapter. Yeah, but it's written really, it's still really pretty beautifully, I think. Which is so beautiful, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. So maybe he did the right thing. Uh, where not to start, though? Let's. So you have yours. I, you I gave mine that. already. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. God, what would I say? I don't know. I feel like... Oh, I think you said German uh, ideology. Oh, I, yeah. I did say German yeah. ideology. Yeah. Right. Like if you... It's just a... It's a... I mean, the beginning is fine and then the rest <laughs> is just... It's brutal. It's like 550 pages and, and 300 or more are on Max Stirner and they're just like... It's like constant sarcasm about... Can you believe he holds this view? <laughs> like, okay, yeah, I can't believe it. It's terrible. <laughs> Talk about something else. Please, uh, yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's just, in fact, I think I write about 
that in my book on comedy about how mm. it's just if you take a joke on too long, it really yeah, that's pretty funny. It loses a lot of its, uh, mm. it loses everything. In fact, it becomes just horrible. So anyway, yeah. so that I think German ideology probably. I mean, the other possibility is, and no one would start here, so it's a dumb thing to say by <laughs> me. Um, Cap, volume two of Capital volume is pretty. Two. It's pretty dry. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> although it has this. It has Marxist to me his greatest line ever. He says, "Once you understand." that in it's enjoyment rather than accumulation that we're after, mm. capital is destroyed. Yeah. And I thought, God, that's like... How far wow. seeing is that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like a totally psychoanalytic insight, too. Absolutely. Uh, out, of, out, of, out of Marx. So anyway. Yeah, so you that, make that so the... You do make that the, um, like, one of the... the generating remarks for capitalism and desire, right? I think it's in the end of it, yeah. yeah. I, I, I'm worried that I quote that uh, like in four, four or five books, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's one of those things like, oh, I love that. I have, And I have this little way of saying it like uh, no one would, uh, Capital Volume 2 is a dry book except here, and then so I think I always even say it the same the way. The same way? Talk oh. about it, yeah. yeah. So anyway. That's pretty I did, I, I, It's not a case of like people accuse Slavoj of cutting and paste. I didn't cut and paste it. I just, I just boringly repeat the same. <laughs> the same. <thing laughs> you actually, you're, over. you're not, you're not even smart enough to copy and paste. You're I'm just not even rewriting it. Yeah, I just <laughs> rewriting it. Yeah, yeah. that's funny. Thinking I'm doing something original. Okay, so let's uh, let's move to Fanon, friends. Yeah, Fanon. definitely. Yeah. So okay. um, I can only have uh, one answer to this. Okay, and it has to be the answer for both. Oh. We don't really have a place not to start. I don't I really Fanon because his life was so short. Yeah, there's none. So you, we're going to disagree on this. Okay, so we're going to disagree. Um, yeah. yeah, I think it's got to be uh, black skin, white mask, like okay. uh, to to start. And okay. uh, anyway, wh- what about because what, about what do you find? What do you find? What do you get out of that book? What do you? What do you? What makes it important for you? Um, I think I don't know. Like, I mean, don't, don't you think that like how he talks about language? Is so like and yeah. is 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 important. It's like, um, it, to me, I don't know. It like it, 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 he does. Um, I I I don't know. I I like it a little bit better than I like Edward Said commenting. Like no, I think I mean on, I think on psychoanalysis. Great... Like he's within psychoanalysis and commenting. Oh, for sure. He's yeah. Within. I mean, he was an analyst. Yeah. Right? Like he is. He's for. I mean, he's a fast. I I I love Fanon immensely and yeah. I feel like that I think it's a great book I just taught it last semester and students really liked it so I, th- mm-hmm. I think it's a good choice uh, I think what's interesting is I mean he does get a little bogged down in specific like um, it's highly gendered for one thing mm-hmm. um, and specific like relations between like this is what happens when a black man and a white woman are involved in a relationship you know what I mean okay this so it's a little too happened. particular well, yeah. is that is that yeah, maybe. maybe. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, but but I think students still find a lot to grab onto and I think mm. it, like I think his he gets at the structure the way race works psychically. Yeah. Really really well. Maybe better than anybody. Mm. I mean, I don't know, would you want to claim that? Would like, I want to claim you, that? I but like his anal- his psychic analysis of race. Is, yeah. is still the like uh, well, still the standard. It definitely you can almost draw. I don't think that the. I mean, we've talked about them before. Uh, the the field sisters. I don't think I don't know that they reference him. Do they in 
racecraft. I haven't read racecraft, so you you tell me. That. Yeah, do they not? I, I don't think that I don't know if they do, but I think that the um the their their idea that racism creates race. I mean, I, I think that that's uh, you can draw an implicit line between what Fanon is on about to right, right. what what they're writing about, and I think that um yeah yeah I I think that 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 it is this like within like this psychically like it's within it's you know for one it like um you know we go back to Lacan that like the uh, you know the unconscious is structured like a language I think that you might even be able to say that racism is structured like a language yeah it, yeah that's good yeah. I yeah I think that's right I mean I feel like I mean he he is such a fascinating figure because he brings together psychoanalysis and Marxism and then it's mm-hmm. it's like it's it's like he shows how the critique of racism should be mobilized within that or mm. the critique of racialism itself yeah is mo should and it's it, i i find it infinitely fascinating that it's not more especially in psychoanalytic circles our friend sheldon george yeah often says this like i i it's because i i don't feel like there's anywhere i feel at home like i go to conferences mm about race and no one talking about psychoanalysis. I go to conference of psychoanalysis. There seems to be not that much discussion of race. And I feel like that's a, I mean, that's, that's a, that seems to me very problematic. And mm-hmm. I, I, I also feel, I'm not sure why that is. Because yeah. I feel like there's something like, it's such a crucial part of the way that the, like fan, I don't know how you understand racism without fantasy. And I also, mm-hmm. but, Conversely, I don't understand know how you understand fantasy without talking about the way racism functions. Yeah. You know, yeah. so I feel. I mean, I think Slavoj does a pretty good job of talking about race, um, but but I you know I think other people maybe don't. So mm. yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I well, I mean, I, I, I mean, this is like uh, the the Hegel and race podcast that that we're that we're yet to do. Um, I mean, yeah. it certainly has uh, this aspect to it. I mean, it is so fascinating that like we're. Um, you have the you have a, a theory here that like it that you know Fanon is 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 working with and showing how like you know useful it is to be to to discuss racism and understand the 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 structure and I mean and and I think you're right to say that about Slavoj like I mean it like what he brings to thinking about um the politics and racism is enjoyment and like I mean I don't right know, I think that I, isn't he, that so crucial like to understand that people are racist because it's enjoyable to be racist yeah I mean like that 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 is just to me. Like, like this notion that oh they're just uneducated. They're, yes. No, 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 no. It's enjoyable. Yeah. It's enjoyable. Yes. And if they're uneducated, they want to be uneducated about right. that issue because it's clear. I mean, it's not very hard to be educated about race mm. today. I wonder. Right? It's yeah. Well, no, I, I wonder. So that that what's interesting to me is like that's Freud's idea of wild psychoanalysis that information will cure the symptom, right? Right. And, and that's right. that's completely wrong. Um, but I wonder why. So I guess to to pull to pull that in, uh, like there's just there's so so much availability to go back to Sheldon's comment. There's so much availability to be talking about um, race with with this theory, and there is not that much. And it is, it's just weird. I don't know. I mean, like, I, well, I don't yeah. think I think it's I think it's I think it should be indicted. Like, I yeah. think that yeah, I think that that's a. I don't. I don't think it's a theoretical problem. I think no. it's a. It's a. It's a. It's a pervasiveness of like, you're white. I, you don't have to think about that question. Yeah. Right? So like there's there's an enjoyment have, there yeah, within the second. Yeah, which is so right. Which is which. Which is precisely how fetishistic disavowal works. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, like it's it's like, uh, why aren't um, mediators writing about 
I don't, I'm not analyzing these things. Sure, I'm analogizing sure. these things. But why aren't meat eaters writing about fact, you know, f- factories like mm-hmm. meat factories? Because the, you know, because there's so much fetishistic disavowal working. It's the same reason. That's true. Yeah, I think it's the same. Why aren't, why aren't white psychoanalytic theorists writing about race more? And mm. I think that's the. I don't know. I just think it's that that fetishistic disavowal is so. I mean, it should be, of course, self-evident, but mm. I don't know. It's not, maybe it's maybe it's not. Uh, I just want to yeah. say that I, 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 I mean, I think it's perfectly defensible to take black skins, white masses, your yes. starting text. But mm-hmm. I, I think I would choose Wretched of the Earth because, okay. I mean, I think it's it's also the more dangerous one because it's, he's so clearly advocating violence as the way to mm. respond to the colonial situation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's... So, that's so I don't know. Yeah. So maybe that's a problem, but... Uh, I yeah. I don't I feel like it also like he he gets into the I think it it much more it's a much more revolutionary book and he had become so Black Skins is his first book and then Wretch of the Earth is basically his dying mm. book I mean I think it was published just before he died or, or just posthumously so um, you know he had become a much more revolutionary a much more revolutionary figure and and was and mm. and thought that you know that the that the, the the some in some way the response to like he's very influenced by the master slave dialectic mm. and the notion that the the violence of the of the colonialized uh, the colonial revolt is the or the the revolt of the colonialized the colonized um mm. is the is the way that they assert their subjectivity you know and mm. the way they they become subjects so i don't know so i th- i feel like that's i've taught that a couple times and mm. and it's kind of a wake-up call for students, and that's how mm. Sartre wrote, famously wrote a preference to preface to it, and and that's how he presents it as hmm. this kind of wake-up call to Europe. Do you think this is one of the, um, pe- uh, you know, Stephen King has that book that, that's all about um, a guy going back in time preventing uh, JFK from being shot? But do you think yeah. uh, this is one of the great? Um, like sliding doors moments. Like what if he had lived yeah. through the a moment yeah. of civil rights? Like what would civil yeah. rights have looked like in this country? Yeah. 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 I mean, do you, I, the, that's a good question because I'm not sure how much influence he would have had in the U S mm. um, but maybe they would have read him. I yeah. mean, I just think his death, I mean, I don't think in the, just in the U S I think around the world things would have been, I mm. think he would have had a quite an impact. I mean, he was such a powerful thinker. Yeah. Mm. I mean, to me, his, I mean, he was 36, I think, when he died. It's just amazing. I think that's or right. 38, yeah. maybe. Yeah. 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 Very incredibly young. And he died in America. Mm. He came for treatment, for, for cancer treatment, and didn't it didn't help. So, mm. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like that's a, you're right, that's a good sliding doors mm. question. Sad question. It's a sad question. Yeah, I'm sorry. It took <laughs> yeah. us to, to, a, sad, to yeah. a sad place. Okay. So let's, 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 let's stay sad and talk about Deleuze and Foucault. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, great. Okay. Uh, who do you want? So, do you want to start with uh, first? Yeah, let's start with Deleuze. Deleuze first. first. So, yeah. So, uh, I my my uh, my text to make you like the text I think would help people like Deleuze and sort of get you into the essence of his thought would be one of the Spinoza books. So either mm. the Spinoza Practical Philosophy or Expressionism in Philosophy, because I feel mm. like he. He's closest to, of all other thinkers, he's closest to Spinoza. I think he does the least violence to Spinoza's work. I know, <laughs> it's interesting, because I know 
I know we're not we're not doing this to say what other people would say, but right. based on our talk we had the other day, yeah. I think Joan Kopchak would say the Kant book. The, yes, the Kant, his book on Kant's critique of judgment. And I think I think there are arguments for a lot of different ones. I think there's argument for the masochism book. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's an argument for the Bergson book, even or oh, the yeah. cinema mm-hmm. books, mm-hmm. or yeah. But I th- I think I would choose the Spinoza ones because I think they're really nice and clear. I think they really give a sense of he's really with a philosopher that he's he's on the same wavelength with, and I think his reading is pretty good. So mm. that's what I'd say. That's pretty good. I forgot about the cinema books, which I've read. I I I didn't I didn't mind those so much. I guess. Yeah, they're yeah, yeah. They're, no, I know they're they're fine. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, I my, mean, it's interesting because people that are psychoanalytic have certain Deleuze books they think are fine. Totally. Right? Like yeah. the cinema books, mm-hmm. the Kant book. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, the repetition design. What's it called? Uh, it, it's it's um, how have I it's forgotten? D- difference it? in repetition. Difference in repetition. Yep. Uh, maybe logic of sense, right? Mm-hmm. And then the ones that are total anathema are like anti Oedipus. Yeah, it's in the and, title. Uh, thousand plateaus. <laughs> yeah. And, right. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> right. yeah. Well, one of my. I, I pretty yeah, much right. don't like. I'm pretty much against totally, but but <laughs> if but if I if forced to, but like I like his reading of Spinoza, but I'm I'm. I, I'm sort of opposed to Spinoza too, so I don't, hmm. I'm not convinced by either position. Yeah. I see. That's interesting. So it's like um, that that has the for for someone for someone who you're not convinced by to write about someone who you're not convinced by, like the degree of uh, difficulty of that argument maybe is not as high as it would be for right. someone right. who's thought that you right. liked or had a take on. Right. Yeah. Right. So yeah. if if Deleuze wrote a book on Hegel, then there's no I'm chance. I hate that book. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. That's funny. So my pick is going to be another one that I think is. Um, uh, safe with psychoanalytic thinkers, and that's uh, coldness and cruelty. Oh, um, good. Yeah, yeah, the masochism one. The masochism yeah. one. Yeah, specifically um, the. I mean, if you had, had to boil it down to a chapter, I mean, he does call the. I believe the chapter is called the death instinct. Um, yeah. So it's not. You know, we, we're still working with the uh, Strachey translation uh, problem of drive and. Although know. he didn't have that problem. That's true. So why is it called that? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Well, uh, I don't know what the French. That's an interesting question. Like what the French. There's no French standard edition, or there wasn't when he was alive, hmm. of Freud. So I'm not sure how they. I mean, it could have been terribly translated into French. I mean, he does. I guess it's true. I mean, this is the thing, right? When Freud talks about instinct, he's talking about biological instinct, and when he's talking about yeah. drive. He's talking about something that is uh, exceeds uh, biological necessity. So right. I'm right. trying to. I. It's been a while since I read the. Uh, Deleuze's uh, chapter on that um but so I'm not sure if he does anything with the with the word or not but um yeah. I do anyway but yeah no I like that a lot I think that's a great place yeah. to start that's a good choice it, yeah. it also yeah. I, I I do want to say too though that I think that his general take in that book I think Lacan has in the anxiety seminar uh like there yeah the, I think so too yeah yeah yeah, that's a good. That's good. So yeah, yeah. So that's a good one. That's a really good one. Yeah. All right. So let's. Um, where not to start? That's a hard. I mean, I would say anti Oedipus just because. But I, th- I could see someone being convinced by that. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I but, don't know. But it's I a certain a kind. Good... I mean, this is good to talk about Foucault uh, because I think this is the, like Foucaultian understanding of of psychoanalysis, right? And, yeah. and, and it's this this like bourgeois like kind of popular. Well, ideological, and I mean, ideological. Just, yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I would, I would certainly say, 
I would certainly say anti-Oedipus. Anti-Oedipus, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, okay. I guess we're in agreement on that. We're in total total agreement on that, yeah. Um, It's interesting because I feel like uh, for thinkers I don't like, I often try to sabotage my teaching of them. But I don't do that for Deleuze. Like, I think... You read that masochism, yeah, the coldness right. and cruelty, in a class with me. Right? That's right. That is correct. Yeah. That's so I don't. I don't, that, yeah. I don't think with Deleuze, I, and I've taught the cinema books many times. So, hmm. and I've had students that have that have liked Deleuze. So that so. So you're I, more fair I, to against him than my. Maybe you think. I, I'm. I'm more. Fa- I'm fair to Deleuze in a way. I, I wish that I wasn't. So <laughs> I. I mean, I try not to be fair. Um, <laughs> just when you think you're out, right? He pulls. You I know. Just uh, they pulled me back in with. Well, uh, it's probably conscious fairness. I mean, that's that's a terrible. Thing. But maybe maybe yeah. what it is is that like your distaste for anti Oedipus is so much that you couldn't. I don't even want to read it. Anymore. Yeah, you wouldn't even want to teach yeah, it. Yeah. 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 I think that's yeah. true. Yeah. And and yeah yeah I think that's probably true. And and um, what other little book of his did I? Did I, I don't know. I can't remember. But um, yeah, yeah. I think that's probably the, so. Let's go to Foucault, who I consciously do try to subvert students' investment. In <laughs> so let's start with that because that, that's interesting. Where do you where okay. do you start them okay. to try so to subvert? I, I, I have a lot of them, but my <laughs> favorite one. I, I hate this book. Is Archaeology of Knowledge? Right. Like okay. It, it is. A, it is a almost guaranteed. Like they're like, why is Foucault this thought of as an important figure? I don't. I don't understand. Yeah. Then you can put your hands in your hip. You're like, yeah, I don't know. I really I don't know. Don't know. <laughs> See, you're looking at it. It yeah. doesn't. Um, yeah. So that. But I'll, I often teach because I, I find this one more enjoyable. I find Archaeology of Knowledge unbearably boring. But um, <laughs> uh, Order of Things is. Uh, I, I find it interesting, mm-hmm. and students aren't. They're not seduced by that. So I think that's a good so that's perfect. Where not to begin. You yeah. get to be a little yeah. interested, and they don't have yeah. to take it wholesale. Right, <laughs> right. It's a little long. I mean, it's like 400 pages. It's so true. It is longer that. for him. Yeah. yeah, but there's a great discussion of the the Velasquez painting Las Meninas, Las Meninas in the yeah, beginning. That's so mm-hmm. that's, yeah, it's, it's okay. It's, um, I don't know. So then, but then one, the one, where to start? I mean, to me, it's obvious, and it's why I never teach it as discipline and punish. I think yeah. it's like... Uh, I think it's amazing. It's just an amazing book. Mm. And, and when I read it, I was almost ready to like, you know, give up everything and, <laughs> and become a Foucauldian monk. I was really <laughs> like, you know, you know, like when Christ says to the rich man, like, go sell everything you have and come and follow me. I was like ready to do that for <laughs> Foucault. And like, I was really on the verge. And then luckily I had a friend who's like, no, 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 no. Here, let me give you a copy of, being a nothingness and reread that. And oh, there you go. You'll come back to the, the <laughs> fold. And then I did. So that was good. That's so. funny. Yeah, no, it, yeah. that is a great text. But I it's mean, great. the, yeah. but I think too, um, I, I, I talk about this in the, um, that the essay that I have in, um, the, um, can philosophy love that the, uh, the notion of the panopticon, I mean, I, I think yeah. is at once, I think it's great, but I also think now it's too available and really misses the point. Like it, it it's, um, you know, you can say like, I have students, you, you, I don't know if you've seen this episode of, of black mirror, but, but like, uh, or just whatever, but students have been convinced, uh, all over to put like, um, like a tab or tape over there. Yeah. Um, the, the, the camera on their, on their, like on their MacBooks or their computers because yeah. the government just hacks into it or whatever. Yeah. And uh, which is, you know, whatever, it's fine. I mean, it's true. Like there's not a conspiracy theory, like government does this, but, you know? Um, yeah. but the thing is, is like what's missing is the idea that like they do this because they can't see shit. 
That's why they do this is they can't see anything. And if they could, then we wouldn't even know about this. Um, You know, my favorite thing about this surveillance thing there. So, so Slavoj has an interview with some, I think it's a, a, a Dutch guy. Okay. And it's Peter, I forget his last name, or that's not anything probably yet. But <laughs> so he's talking to him, he's like, What do you, what are you, you know, there was this big surveillance thing just came out. Mm-hmm. And he's like, Aren't you, doesn't this horrify you? Aren't you terrible? And, and so I was like, Nah, you know, I don't really, it doesn't bother me. And this guy's like, Totally. <laughs> dumbfounded he's like it doesn't bother you and he's like it's lovely because you know i send these theoretical texts and he goes what are they gonna what are they gonna, <laughs> you know he goes they're just a bunch of dumb people or computers <laughs> looking at them he goes what are they doing and he goes he goes they probably have it upside down when they're looking at it and then he said he has my favorite line he's like he's like showing hegel's logic to a cow <laughs> and i thought i thought god that is so fun. but basically i that's what i think about all this surveillance yeah. like well, I just feel yeah. like it's much more the idea that you're being surveyed. Yes. That is the way ideology. It's not the fact of surveillance. Right. It's the like putting the thing over the over the over the camera. Over the camera. Right. Like that's where ideology really functions. Yeah. Not, or when you go on Facebook. I mean, my God, like the whole self-reporting on Facebook. Oh, right. Not right. that everybody's. It's not even that people are looking at it. It's the idea that people are looking at it. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. that's... Because that comes, it comes back to our, our what we were saying about Hegel and substance, right? Yeah. Like that's you're believing in a substantial other, yes, that's there that like knows what they're doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so funny, like this constant commentary about how stupid Trump is. He can't even do. But then, oh, but behind the scenes, they're all they really know what they're doing. Yeah, when they're, I mean. <laughs> Have you heard these people talk on CNN? I mean, like they're, they're yeah. Well, it's like know. well, I mean, that's a that's a whole like CNN has a thing where like it. Um, I was reading this on I I forget where I was reading this, but like they they also whenever it comes to uh, anything that has to do with like war or violence or whatever, like they are profoundly like supportive of the of, yeah. of the president yeah. and like there is absolutely a plan, you know, and and um so that's uh. That's one of the great I mean, that's one of the great things that um, that supports conspiratorial thinking, too, is when you can have when you can have something be two things like at once right. in, in a way that's not contradictory, but in like a productive sense. But like the, you know, like the president's, I mean, this also supports racism, right? Like Mexicans are incredibly hard workers because they take all the jobs and also they're really lazy because they live on public assistance. All right. Thanks. Right. That's, that's great. That's great, 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 great thinking. Yeah, it's great. great <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah it's, but anyway, yeah. so I find, but look, I think it's wrong, but I think it's seductive. I think Absolutely. discipline and punish is totally. God. You read it, you're like, oh my God, this is how power functions, mm-hmm. of course. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, the other problem is I feel like it gets us thinking, and this ties to Deleuze too, it gets us thinking in terms of power and not in terms of desire. And I mm. think that is the disaster. Like, yes. I feel like that's the... That's great. I mean, I feel like, you know, I I feel like anytime we're analyzing a situation in terms of power, we're immediately eliding the unconscious dimension of that. Yes. And that is precisely the problem of Foucault's whole thought that for me gets crystallized, um, in the last, I think the last thing that's, um, I don't know that he published it. It might've been published after his death, but it's the, the courage of truth and it's in the courage of truth. That's going to be your, your where not to start. Yeah. Well, yeah, actually, because I think it's seductive um, yeah. in that 
what he talks about, you know, he talks about um, Socrates and he talks about Foucault talks about Parisia. And this is the part that I, I actually think is useful um, is he gives a gloss of like there's three meanings. There's um, there's free speech and uh, what free speech means uh, in this context is like you just going into like you going to Church Street and you just like saying whatever you want. Okay. Like it's just, it's just like you, and this is always like, and this is one of the, I think a, 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 in some ways a uniquely American problem is that like people are very convinced by the idea that like, because we can do something like we, we must do it or it's good because right. we do, right. Um, right. You, you know, like that's the, uh, that's, that's always ends up being like an argument for, uh, well, I mean, I think it's an argument for, for Trump. Well, it's free speech. It's like so. Right, that's right. so we don't ever have to talk about productive speech. That never gets right. put in put in the thing. So anyway, yeah. so that's for Foucault. That's the first level. That's free speech of Parisia. There's a second level where it is um, frank speech, and this is between friends, like mm-hmm. me saying something that you like. If I said, you know, uh, there's actually a hundred pages of anti-Oedipus that I think is uh, pretty great. Like, I don't know. Let's just give like a stu- I thought you were going to go the other way with that. I thought you were going to say, there's actually a hundred pages of capitalism desire that I think are total shit. <laughs> okay. All right. That's, you're yeah. Gonna really tell me the truth about what you think. That's funny. It. Well, so yeah. it would be, well, that's actually, but that's a great example. It works either way is that I'm taking a risk to, yeah. to, to, to say this thing to you. And then there's, yeah. um, fearless speech. And this is the third level. And this is what he's trying to talk about. And this is how he sees Socrates as like saying something that not, that endangers your uh, position within the polis. And I actually think that um, this, so this is late, but it basically agrees with um, Lacan's notion of the ethical act. And it's so interesting that, um, that this is Foucault's uh, thing supposedly on, on ethics and ethical living is that, you know, it, the acceptance of the uh, of the cut is to like to perform an act in which it does it, it could do you risk it could do you injury right, right. It, or it injures your symbolic status basically right but the problem with um the the courage of truth and if you're not and if and it since it i mean Foucault never brings this up he never makes this argument um so it, you have to come at this i think from like a psychoanalytic lens is that right. everything he says about like ethical living involves a profound degree of intention which means if you just decide to live right. an ethical life you're doing it and just right. you don't have to be a freudian to be convinced by the idea that you don't always do things for the reasons you think you do them um, right. or the re- you know, the reason you think you do stuff is not always the reason why you do things, you know, or, or right. either right. way of, on that. And Foucault elides the whole problem by not having an unconscious. It's yeah. basically, I mean, this does go back to Hegel to the beginning of this podcast is like it, you are eliding mediation. And right. when you right. get rid of mediation, you can make all kinds of claims. And, and, right. and I mean, that, yeah. I think that's fascinating. That isn't that why Hegel is the pre great precursor of Freud because, yeah. Once you have once you have this profound acknowledgement of mediation, then the idea of the unconscious just kind of emerges absolutely almost organically out of that. Yeah. yeah. Since that brings us back to the beginning, I, I think it'd be a pretty good place to stop for today. Yes, I I also think so, and I think so. For our next episode or third one, uh, I think we're going to start with um, Heidegger, which is going to find its uh, genesis here because uh, Foucault. This is, I think this might be collected in like ethics and subjectivity, something like that. But there, yeah, I've read it. I know, I know. You know, what, yeah, you know what I'm going to yeah. say? Like the, there's, yeah. there's these interviews he does and there's, um, the interviewer says to him, like, you know, you never reference Heidegger. 
and uh, but I see him like you know sort of everywhere in your thought and uh, Foucault says something to the effect of that like there are some influences so great that one cannot even talk about them which uh, which I think is interesting um, it is it makes so you're saying Heidegger should be our starting point for where to start where not to start yes for next for next time yeah that's where we should start and uh, I don't know okay. maybe there's an argument for us not to start there I don't know but like that's no no <laughs> I think let's start with Heidegger and 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 we'll start with Heidegger's some Nazism stuff. Probably. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably we're not to okay, start. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Probably we're not to start. Probably not. Okay. All right. Over and out. Thanks so much, Todd. <laughs>